This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. Well, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. There is a new book out, and... Wow. Uh, It is one of those books that you think, this is going to change a lot of things. And it's, it's an odd book for me to read because I think I may have mentioned this here before, but I don't ever like read articles or books or anything that I'm in. <laughs> it's just sort of a self-protective posture that take it makes it makes it easier for me to forgive people who, you know, maybe say nasty things about me. So I just don't I just don't read it. But I did read this. And so it was kind of a surreal experience sort of reliving certain parts of the last 10 years in evangelical America in a really, really amazing narrative storytelling and analysis form. The book is called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism by Tim Alberta, who is writer for The Atlantic, previously wrote what most people consider the definitive work of analysis on the Trump era and the Republican Party, American Carnage. This one is looking specifically at what's going on in American evangelicalism. Tim Alberta, thanks so much for being with us today. Dr. Moore, thank you for having me and thank you for the the kind introduction. One of the moments that was kind of a mouth open shock moment but it, it wasn't for me reading this book just because you and I had already talked about it at one point. But is the moment early on, I think it's in the introduction, where you talk about being at your dad's funeral, pastor, 
really important influence on your life. I want to talk about that later on. And someone coming up to critique the things that you had been writing on Trump and, and Trumpism at your dad's funeral. And I've heard of that sort of thing happening several times over the past several years. How how did we get here where that's considered okay? The political is bleeding into everywhere, even places that never would have before been appropriate to have those kinds of fights. That's the question that I found myself wrestling with here, which was, you know, listen, I, I think we all understood to, to, to varying degrees that politics had really invaded the church. I don't think even seeing what I had seen and, and knowing what I knew, I, I was just not prepared for that sort of escalation. You know, dad's in a box 100 feet away. And if you've lived through that sort of unexpected family tragedy, you're, you're sort of in a state of shock. Mm-hmm. You're processing and, and you're, you feel like you're sort of floating and you haven't slept. And so for, for people to suddenly be kind of confronting me and wanting to litigate, you know, Trump and MAGA and Rush Limbaugh and, and kind of in my face, it wasn't until the third or fourth person was that I was actually even registering like, wow, this is real, this is happening. And this is, and then, you know, the next day, as I write in, in the prologue, after we bury my dad, I get back from the cemetery and I had actually taken a bit of a detour in his eulogy that I had delivered that morning by kind of addressing what had gone on the day before saying, wow, I didn't realize that that this was so important that that folks needed to bring this up at my dad's funeral, you know, still in a bit of shock over all of that. So then we go to the cemetery and we bury him and we come back to my parents' house and I'm handed a note from one of the church ladies who was there preparing a meal for us. She said, yeah, somebody left this for you at the church. And it's like a full page long, just handwritten screed from a former elder at the church, somebody I'd known since I was like six years old, just dressing me down saying that, I, I was an embarrassment that I was undermining God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump, and how dare I. But he also assured me that I could be restored if, if, if I were to use my journalism skills to investigate the deep state and to, to help uh, expose the wrongdoing of the deep state, then I would be forgiven by him and by God. And we all have these moments, I suppose, along the way where something that had been a very glaring, obvious problem. It really, it goes from being at the back burner, a low simmering thing to suddenly it's just in your face and you can't ignore it anymore. And that was really the moment for me where I just said, what is going on here? Where does the fear and grievance come from? I mean, what's the, what's the root of all of that? I think we, I think it's, it's obvious that we see it but I will often have secular, non-religious friends who will say, you know, what What are American evangelicals so afraid of? And I know what, I, my, what my answer is, but I, I'm wondering after spending all of this time, how would you explain that? You know, I spend the first section of the book on this idea of a competing kingdom. In, a, in other words, Jesus talks 
just almost nonstop in the Gospels about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom to which we as believers are called and, and the kingdom in which our citizenship ultimately resides. And the idea of how we in the American context are so particularly vulnerable because of the power and because of the influence of this country, but also because of its history and because of the, the sort of founding mythos around being like this, this ordained country, blessed, uniquely blessed by God. I think the answer that I've come to in so much of my reporting is really resting on this idea that for a very long time in this country, when you would hear rhetoric, you know, in the in the 70s and the 80s from evangelical figureheads, Christian conservative leaders, moral majority types, talking about the decline of Christian America, talking about how the barbarians were at the gates, talking about how, you know, secular progressives and humanists and the rest, that they were coming for us, that they were going to shut down our churches, that they were going to, you know, eradicate the almighty from public life, that they were going to persecute us. That rhetoric has always been there, but I don't think at scale people believed it. I don't even think mm. most of the people saying it believed it. Mm -hmm. I think what's changed more recently, and I really mean more recently, like just the last 10 to 12 years, is a sincere belief among some of these folks that that threat is now here, that there is a clear and present danger, that the barbarians really are at the gates. I think this is why COVID-19 looms so large in all of this, that when you had government officials telling churches to close and the sort of the, the the fracturing of congregations that ensued as a result of it. I mean, some of this almost felt like it was prophecy being fulfilled. I don't think you can overstate just sort of psychologically how important that period of time was to shaping these fault lines we now see in the church, because that fear was... I think an abstract concept for a very long time. And mm -hmm. then all in short order, it, it wasn't abstract anymore for, for, for a lot of these folks. It was very real. I mean, I have seen some of the things that we were so afraid of or that many evangelical Christians were so afraid of come and go and just be completely gone. You know, in 2013, Common Core was what you heard everywhere. This is the, and now nobody mentions common core. Critical race theory a couple years ago, and now that's gone. That, that's sort of uh, blown through. So why do these things emerge and then they go away? And no one stops to say, oh, wait, we, we really didn't need to be afraid of that. It's instead, well, now it's drag queen story hour. Well, <laughs> until that's over and then it's, it's gone. It's, it's, you know, it's a great point. And I would argue this sort of gets into the, the second section of the book, the power. I think, Dr. Moore, and you've obviously encountered this yourself. You have individuals, both high profile individuals, sort of with a national visibility, and then, you know, individuals who are leaders of individual congregations or, or organizations, movements at the grassroots level, who have a vested interest in stirring up these emotions, in, mm -hmm. in inciting a certain amount of fear, in convincing people that their way of life is about to be disrupted or, or dismantled. Mm -hmm. And 
And when you have individuals who are willing to exploit those fears in such a shameless way, then, and you ask yourself, well, why, right? Why? Because I think for a lot of them, there is a certain ends justify the means mentality here where you are looking at the big picture, you see Christianity on the decline in America, you see secularism, not only ascendant, but sort of working its way into every institution of of public life, and, and you see the culture wars being lost, and you say, okay, whether it's Common Core, whether it's Obamacare, whether it's CRT, whether it's any of these things that you can grab onto, if you can use that issue, if you can use it as a motivator, if you can convince the masses, or at least the people in your immediate sphere of influence, that this poses a real threat, and you can scare them, then they're going to donate money. Mm -hmm. They're going to volunteer their time. They're going to vote the way that you would like them to vote. You know, I was having this amazing conversation going down memory lane with Cal Thomas, who had Mm -hmm. been the spokesman for Jerry Falwell Sr.'s moral majority. Mm -hmm. And Cal, of course, is a longtime syndicated columnist, brilliant writer. And and Cal himself, many years ago, had a sort of road to Damascus moment where he just realized that what they were doing with the moral majority was wrong. And, Blinded and that it, by it, Might. Yeah. Blinded by Might was the book that he wrote. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Cal and I were having a conversation about this. And he talked to me about how when they would send out fundraising emails for the moral majority, it was never to celebrate anything that had been achieved. Mm. It was never to out of encouragement. Yeah. It was never saying, oh, hey, here's how, you know, here, we really appreciate you. Here's how we're going to use this money. It was always as a formula. It was fear. Fear is what works. You know, Randall Balmer makes this argument that the myth is that evangelicals were mobilized by Roe v. Wade and, and reaction to Roe v. Wade. And his argument is that was never really what was going on. Instead, it was race, that the the primary galvanizing issue was the Bob Jones IRS case, the segregation academies across the South and protecting tax exemption from them. How do you see race playing into what's happened in the church? I go to great lengths early on to make plain that, you know, I'm talking here about my faith tradition. And Mm -hmm. my faith tradition isn't just evangelicalism. It's not just conservative evangelicalism. It is white conservative evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. which you know, I grew up in a town that was, my sense would be, if you dug up the Census Bureau statistics, probably at least 95% white. I'm overwhelmingly white. I think I had one or two black classmates in my high school. Th- this is important to emphasize because when you look at even just the social science, forget about the the anecdotal experiences. When you look at just the social science, black Christians are significantly less likely to even identify as evangelical. And then those who are, they have a whole different set of behavioral responses to certain things than do white evangelicals. So in a sense, if you were just to look at polling data across the board, Christians and non-Christians alike, you would see some of these pretty noticeable divergences along racial lines. But what's really interesting to me is that even in a church setting, 
even among believers who are theologically, and I would even say in many ways culturally aligned, you will still run into some of those same fault lines. And this is where questions of having sort of multi-ethnic churches, you will, you, you'll really, as, as you know better than most, you will really get some dander up among white evangelicals if you discuss the importance of being around believers who do not look like you and who do not have the same background as you and and talk about what every tribe and tongue really means and talk about what we are promised in heaven. I understand at a certain level the sort of reflexive, almost bitterness that you will elicit when having that conversation with some white Christians who believe that they are being caricatured, that they're being cast as racist just because they happen to come from, that's not what we're doing here and that's not what we're discussing. But when you come to questions of racial reconciliation in the church, it's impossible to ignore, to say this as plainly as I can, it's impossible to ignore the kinds of conversations you have in multi-ethnic congregations versus the conversations that take place in all white congregations. And that's not something that Christians, regardless of where you go to church or whom you worship with, that's not something that Christians can ignore because that is a schism that threatens the very, I think the very, the very soul of the church itself. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. When I look at the, some of the people that I have worked with for years and years and years, when it comes to racial justice, racial reconciliation, multi-ethnic congregations, the people who right now are the most resistant to the idea of multi-ethnic congregations are black and brown evangelicals who previously would have been working for that. Yes. But who now say with what we have seen over the past several years, that the expectation is not genuinely multi-ethnic. It is a white congregation in terms of power, but a multi-ethnic congregation in terms of makeup. And as one really active black evangelical in these areas said to me one time, you know, the, the place that actually is safe and and can drive things forward is the black church. And he said, I never would have said that before because it sounds like I'm saying we need the segregated hour of 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. But, 
He says it, it's almost as though from 2016 on, we've seen something that revealed, oh, wait, this isn't what we thought it was. I mean, are you seeing that same dynamic at work? Yes. In fact, I've had almost identical conversations. And listen, I think that there is a cyclical nature to this, at least maybe mm. I, I hope that there is. In other words, some of these folks you are mentioning who were very much invested in the idea of, of growing the multi-ethnic church 10 years ago have been, I think, bitten by it and, and feel almost betrayed in a sense by, by you know, those by, by what they had put into those efforts and ultimately what it yielded in return. And so they are, in a sense now, going back to a, if you want to call it a safer space. But there's just, I think, for, for too many of these people, a hurt mm -hmm. and a feeling that they were willing to put themselves out there. They were willing to invest in a solution or, or at least try something to address what for many churches is still this just this massive elephant in the room and all they got for it was pain and mm -hmm. heartache and division and there are a lot of these folks as you well know who you can only take so much before you say you know i just want my sunday mornings to be about worship again right, right. i i just i don't i can't deal with the rest of it you have a scene in this book that's i mean there are several that are just wow but one of them is in the office of Robert Jeffress, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, in which there's what you refer to as a shrine to Donald Trump in his office. And it's a, it's a kind of a, a humorous thing. My, what strikes me about that is not just in that account, but also if you look at as a ancestral and lifelong Southern Baptist, the place of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. I mean, George Truett, one of the monumental figures theologically and, and in every other way in Baptist life. And then W.A. Criswell, who, who shaped preaching for an entire generation in Southern Baptist life. And now you have a, a really partisan identified congregation, whether you like it or not, in the most sometimes, I don't know what the word is, I want to say cartoonish, but that's value-laden in, in, the, in the most striking sense, is, is kind of that trajectory of First Baptist Dallas toward partisan identity. Is that what we're seeing sort of across all of the denominations and across all different kinds of churches? Or is there something specific to mega church life in a particular vein? Well, I do think that there's something about the mega church and the, the branding of a mega church that's unique. But that said, certainly what Pastor Jeffress has tapped into there is a model that works at a smaller scale. I've seen ample evidence of that in my travels. I actually think of it in somewhat similar terms to the political realignment we've lived through here, you know, I think broadly speaking over the last 30 years, but even more specifically over the last six to eight years in which if you are to look at a voter's income and 
the question of whether or not they have a college degree and what kind of car they drive. And you look at just a couple of sort of basic, you know, demographic or consumer indicators, then you have a very good predictive ability to say how they vote. I think we've reached a pretty similar place with the church now, which is to say that you use the phrase partisan identity, and I think that is certainly a big chunk of it. I think it's partisan identity. I also think it's cultural identity, yeah. sort of, you know, just base tribal instinct. The fact of the matter is, when you talk with pastors sort of across the evangelical spectrum, so not across the Christian spectrum, where I'm not talking from like the Robert Jeffress at one pole to the rainbow flag flying progressive church at the other pole. No, I mean, we're talking just sort of in the conservative white evangelical space. When you talk to pastors across that spectrum, they will all tell you, and obviously, Dr. Moore, you've had as many of these conversations, if not more than I have had. But they'll all tell you basically the same story, which is that in the last five, six, seven years, they've had somewhere 10, 15, 20, 25% turnover in their congregations. And in some cases, there's been a backfill and people have come in. In other cases, nobody else has come in. But the end result pretty much across the board has been homogeneity. There is a, a, a homogenizing effect in these churches because the question for a lot of congregants who are leaving one church looking for another one is very simply not even the question of do they get into politics on a Sunday morning or not? Do they engage? It's more so, do they agree with me? Do, is this a place where we're all going to be thinking the same things, rowing in the same direction politically? You you have an, a place in the book where you're you're talking to Greg Locke, the you know, a figure who, for a lot of people, I think, just sort of came out of nowhere in the Trump era, but is a, a, a massive force in a certain kind of evangelical Pentecostal life. And I don't know if I'm reading this right, but it sounded to me like in talking to you, he was almost regretful and a little embarrassed about how hardcore he had he had become and was it, it seemed almost like trying to find a way to walk it back which of course didn't end up happening but it, it certainly seemed like that's that's where he wanted to go it, it was I reading that right in in getting that vibe you were it was a fascinating conversation you know I've done this for a while. I've interviewed a lot of people, and I usually have a very good sense going in of, of what kind of conversation I'm going to have. And this one just floored me, really, because he was almost embarrassed, as you said, but, but really, you almost sensed beyond the embarrassment. And beyond even a certain amount of shame, I would say, as I would read back certain things that he had said, and he would kind of downplay them and say, oh, you know, I'm in a different place now, you know, and he had, had admitted to going overboard in certain areas. But then more substantively, what I found fascinating was that there was almost this wink and nod happening mm. as we talked. In other words, he would say, for instance, I don't even like guns. You know, th this idea that we're going to be violent, that's 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 crazy, right? Or he, you know, QAnon, QAnon is, you know, these guys are crazy. I don't want the QAnon people in my church. Or he would say, you know, Christian nationalism, that's, that's a contradiction in terms. I'm, I'm not a Christian nationalist, right? Things that he would never say to 
his own congregation, things that he would never say at Michael Flynn's Reawaken America tour, but things that as I pressed him on his own belief system and his pattern of behavior, that he was sort of backing off, but then almost in the same breath would realize that he was backing off and, and see how that could be perceived as weakness or whatever, and then kind of come back and double down on it. But in doubling down would sort of deliver that wink and nod like, hey, pal, like you're sophisticated mm -hmm. enough to know where I really stand on this. But in order to keep up appearances, I need to at least hold. So and that happened over and over again, where, you know, he would say, you know, somebody's trying to get me to go down to Mar-a-Lago next weekend and I'm not going, I'm done with it. I'm done with all that politics junk. You know, I just want to pastor my people. The, the QAnon thing, that's crazy. I'm not, I'm done flirting with that. And then five minutes later, he'd be back talking about QAnon. And then a week later, he'd be at some conference somewhere calling Tom Hanks a pedophile on stage and saying that Oprah Winfrey, we know what you're doing. Like, so mm -hmm. there was, and the only conclusion I could reach from it was there's a there's a tension there clearly between between you know there's incentives competing but there are almost two men trapped inside the same body and what i was really struck by was the impression i had of Locke from afar had been kind of a to just somebody who's unhinged just kind of a, a total loose cannon somebody who couldn't be reasoned reasoned with and who didn't know better in fact i walked away from it completely convinced that he does know better that he's actually a very smart guy mm -hmm. and and that he's made a conscious decision to go in this direction because of the rewards the rewards in terms of fame in terms of attendance in terms of influence in terms of money he has built a small empire out there with this model crazy as a church growth strategy, as I think our friend David French has said. And once that model proves as effective as it proves, one is, I think, prone to carry on with it. But when what was so interesting about our conversation is as I kept pressing him on it, it was so clear how uncomfortable he was and how I think in, in many ways, almost how remorseful he mm -hmm. was. And you just have to wonder whether it's with the Robert Jefferses of the world who occupy a bit of a different space, obviously, or the Greg Locks of the world, whether there will be ever that sort of public facing contrition, if they might get to a place where they say, boy, I've done some damage here and I really need to, I need to repent of it. Well, you know, one of the figures that I think is most explanatory of the whole thing is not even an evangelical, and that's Glenn Beck. If you think of where Glenn Beck was in the birther controversy and in the Restoring Honor rally in 2010 and so forth, and then in 2016, I mean, National Review uh, did a, a an issue with 22 of us on the right who were against Trump. That was the title. Glenn Beck was one of them. And then later went to the New York Times Magazine and said, I'm sorry for all that. I was flaming all of this. I was too polarizing. I was, I lost sight of myself and I'm, I'm going to be a, a different person from now on. And now he's going back again. I mean, there's Amanda Ripley wrote about this somewhere and said there, the incentive structures are so great that it just takes a certain kind of almost superhuman will to resist it. A superhuman will to resist it and a 
certain degree of shamelessness, if if we can just say it plainly. I think, you know, I remember a member of Congress, Justin Amash, former member of Congress, saying to me at one point during Trump's presidency, he said, you know, Trump's real superpower is he has no shame. Mm-hmm. He, 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 most politicians that I've been around, and this is the former congressman telling me this, he said, most politicians I've been around, even when they tell a bald faced lie, they kind of feel guilty about it. And they feel a little bit gross about it. And they need, they feel the need to maybe come back and hedge or, or even just apologize or whatever. He said, you know, Trump really does have a superpower politically because he doesn't feel that shame. He never feels that, that, that pressure to try to right what he's done wrong. And again, just to speak very plainly, Dr. Moore, in my travels, some of the folks I came across, and I write about this in the book, I think I even write about it in one of the chapters where you're mentioned, when you think about the tension between some of the sort of insurgent, burn the ships, Christian nationalist forces, and then those on the other side, like a Russell Moore, like a Curtis Chang, like a David French, I think the fundamental disadvantage that you have is that you all play by a certain set of rules. And Mm. I think there are others who just don't. And and I think that that is obviously an enormous, enormous advantage to the Charlie Kirks and the Eric Metaxas types that they, there are no rules of engagement. There is no etiquette for them to, to, to observe. And in a way, you know, if you're talking about Greg Locke or some of these other folks, they not only have the incentive structure in place, but there is there is absolutely no disincentive. Yeah. They, they don't see themselves suffering reputationally in their orbits or materially or otherwise by doing the things that they do. Well, and I think also relational networks. I mean, there are certain things that I know even if I wanted to just sort of abandon all of the rules that I play by and, and did those things. I'm going to get a call from David French or, you know, from before from Tim Keller or somebody else, who, Beth Moore, somebody who's going to say, hey, what are you doing? And there's a, a certain sense of knowing, okay, I can't, I, I'm actually going to be called out on that by by some of these networks. And it seems to me that a lot of the relationships breaking down has contributed more to this because you have people who previously would have, you know, at least had each other and now don't speak to each other. It seems to me just makes things more and more extreme all the time. I I, I don't think people really pay attention, especially in the church world, to just how big the relational fracturing piece of it has been psychologically, spiritually, ecclesially, and, and so forth. And I think there was a time, you know, when when a lot of us were coming down on different sides in 2016, there was an assumption, okay, we disagree on this, but ultimately that'll all be repaired and we'll we'll go on together. And now it just doesn't, it doesn't seem that way. I mean, I, I think of somebody that has been monumentally important in my own life who now you know, doesn't speak to me and who's become a Christian nationalist and owns the term and, and all kinds of other things, but I miss him. <laughs> you know, mm. I really do. I mm-hmm. miss the person he was. And, and you know, about 
five times a day, something will come to mind that's kind of funny. I want to I want to call him or text him. And goes, oh, wait, he doesn't speak to me anymore. Do you think that with the way things are being sifted out now and sorted and resorted, is there another sorting to come? I mean, is this just sort of the permanent state now? Or do you see kind of a coming back together, at least in some areas of of American evangelicalism? You know, I really am hopeful. And of course, we are always hopeful because at the end of the day, God is sovereign over these things. And I'm not, you know, as my dad used to like to say, God doesn't bite his fingernails and, and I'm not <laughs> going to either, or at least I'm going to try not to. I, I genuinely am hopeful. And I know that you've experienced the same thing, Dr. Moore. When you spend time with the younger generation, yeah. they really do look at all of this completely differently. Yeah. There's just no, there's no overstating it. I mean, and I talk about this a few times throughout the book. One of the instances that was so striking to me was when you were speaking to a group of young people in Washington at the American Enterprise Institute. Mm -hmm. And one of the real essential differences I've noticed generationally speaking is for my parents' generation, whenever there were discussions about sort of what's wrong in the Christian world and, and where the tensions are, where the fears are, it was always external. Mm -hmm. It was always something's coming for us, right? And how do we fortify our defenses? How, how do we you know, stand up to and, and ultimately defeat the other side? The younger generation, it's completely the opposite. It is all internal. Mm-hmm. So, so when you were speaking to that group in Washington, question after question after question after question, I don't know if you had noticed that th this at the time, but I was in the back of the room there with you taking notes, and there must have been a dozen questions, and all of them were inward focused. Mm -hmm. How did we get this so wrong? What can we do to repair this? What do you say to a fellow believer who's in this situation? In other words, I think that there is among these you know, the children of the moral majority, as I like to call them, and I would count myself among the children of the moral majority. I think they have really internalized this and are really determined that before we can even think about addressing what's gone wrong with the rest of the world, we have to address what's gone wrong within our world. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. 
You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. We're headed into a 2024 presidential election. And one of the things that I hear all the time from church people, pastors, leaders, and other ways, even the ones who don't agree with me on Trump, kind of Trump supporting sort of people is, oh man, what is going to happen when you look at not just all the divisions and the fracturing, but the potential for violence more than what we have ever seen as a country I know you're not a psychic or a prophet, but as you look forward to 2024, having spent all of this time both in the American carnage work on the political side of things and now in the kingdom of power and the glory on the evangelical side of it, what are we, what are we looking at in 2024? I would just say that it could get real dark real fast. I just, I wish I had a sunnier outlook on this. I wish I could see my way to a set of circumstances that avoid the potential of real civic unrest at a scale that we didn't see during Trump's first term. But we're now barreling towards a Trump-Biden rematch. And if all the polling, not just the national polling, but all the state level and district level polling. I mean, there's a reason that I wrote a few weeks ago about this, just this complete meltdown that Democrats are having. Pollsters, members of Congress, they're all seeing the same numbers. A lot of the private polling, it is atrocious for, for Joe Biden at this point. And as James Carville told me, the, the famed Democratic strategist, he said, you know, the real question is whether voters at this point have made up their mind that Biden is simply too old, that the cake is baked already. And he told me that he thinks it is, that, he, that, that, that voters have made up their mind. And if that's the case, then I think we are almost surely looking at a second Trump presidency. And without going deep into the weeds to answer your question, one of the undisputed elements of a second Trump presidency is that the guardrails that existed the first time around, you know, in, in the person of a Paul Ryan, a Reince Priebus, a John Kelly, an H.R. McMaster, a Rex Tillerson, a James Mattis, the people in the White House counsel's office who, you know, held a line against seizing voting machines and invoking martial law. Those people are gone. They are gone. The only folks around a President Donald J. Trump in his second term are the true believers and the folks for whom there is no pushing too far. And it's difficult to consider that whole set of circumstances and think about the personnel and think about what the incentive structures are and think about what Trump has said. Even just recently, he said the other day in New Hampshire that he would like to impose a religious test to only let Christians into the country, right? That sort of thing, uh, we've become totally desensitized to it, to your point earlier. It's almost, you know, the, the prophet Jeremiah said that they'd forgotten how to blush. I mean, we have mm -hmm. forgotten how to blush. There's just no... And so inside the church, at some level, I had a pastor say to me the other day, well, 
even my real hardcore Trump supporters who are definitely going to vote for him again, they've sort of dialed it back now. They're not as they're not quite as animated as they were, not quite as vocal as they were. And I feel better about that. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but we're in an odd numbered year right now. Like, yeah. you know, the closer we get to Election Day, what happens then? And then if he wins and he's opening new fronts in the culture war, as it were, and suddenly if things really start to escalate, what does that do inside of a church congregation? What does it do for neighbors, believers? I told you I'd give you the short version, but I I lose some sleep over it. I really do, because my sense is that just as we underestimated what that first term could look like, as you said, just as we underestimated what could happen in the two months between November 3rd and January 6th, my my fear is that we are really dramatically underestimating how ugly things could get in a second Trump term. And specifically, I think, in, in faith communities that have already been so fractured and who, you know, a lot of us want to tell ourselves that the, that the worst is over and that it can't get any worse than it was. The truth is it probably can get a whole lot worse. You're making me rethink my position on marijuana today. <laughs> so one last question, though. I, I, I've kept you longer than I, I told you I would, so I'm sorry about that. But one last question. I think that this book, as I said, brilliant analysis, uh, sociologically, culturally, politically, everything else. But one of the things that's also true about this book is it's a, in the background, there's a story of fathers and sons. I mean, I, I think that from the very beginning, sort of reflecting on your dad and the ministry that he had and and how he has shaped your thought. As, as you were going through this process, I think you and I are in the same place, having lost our dads at the same time, around the same time, that we're, at least I know I am, I'm sort of seeing a lot of the things that my dad did right that I just didn't notice until later. What 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 really stuck out to you about your dad and his ministry in terms of, of what we can learn about doing this in the future? Hmm. Boy, I could take up a whole nother podcast with that question because it's funny. I, I think some folks who don't know me well, didn't know my dad, may read the early portions of the book and say, boy, this guy is, he's a little bit critical of, of, his, of his father here. When in in fact, if I were to write a book about the things that he had done right, it would be, you know, 20 times the length. And Mm. there's, there's, I think, a responsibility of every generation to assess what had gone wrong and try to address it and try to fix it. And I hope my three sons will do the same on their own one day. But I think about being a good neighbor. And I I, I mentioned this sort of, I think, towards the end of the book, but I think specifically in times that are are so tense and there's so much division, so much just kind of raw fragmenting of of relationships in the church, in neighborhoods, communities. One of the things that I I just really admired about the way that my dad would go about his ministry and just go about his personal life was the way that he invested in people. And you know, if you had a real disagreement with him on something, whether it was political, theological, 
he had a little diner that he went to where all the waitresses were crying for a week after he died, which I said to my mom, I said, mom, this is sort of pathetic, like that any one person could spend that much time at a diner that the waitresses are, you know, sobbing in my scrambled eggs. But, you know, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd take the person to breakfast, take him to lunch, and he would just sit with you and, and talk and listen to everything you said. And they say, yeah, you know, you may not have convinced me, but that's, yeah, that's smart. You got a point there. Hey, can I pray for you? What's going on with your kids? In other words, there, there was no, there was no disagreement, even on big weighty substantive things. There was no disagreement that he was going to allow to get in the way of loving you and praying for you. And that's something I've struggled with. You know, when you go through hardships when you find yourself under attack the way certainly that you've been in in your own career as i document in the book you know you are almost you almost feel like you have permission to respond in kind or if not to respond in kind then to at least you you kind of carry around this scar tissue and Mm -hmm. you you treat people a little bit differently because of it and one of the things that i just always admired about my dad was like there was just a well of grace mm. that was so deep that you just could never see to the bottom of it. And there were moments in his life re- of real breakage with with family, with friends, where I know that he was hurting badly, but I never saw him treat people badly ever mm. once. And that's more than I can say for myself. And, and it's something that I really aspire to. And I think fundamentally reflected christ in his life that he he just knew that if there was any one thing that he wanted to be known for it was that grace and that that love unconditionally that he would offer people and that made a huge impact on my life Hmm. the book is called the kingdom the power and the glory american evangelicals in an age of extremism you will want to read this book you will come away with a a completely new mindset about what's going on in the church and in the world around the church. Tim Alberta, thanks so much for being with us today. Dr. Moore, very kind as always. Thanks for having me. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate Producers, Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media, Matt Stevens. Audio Engineering, provided by Dan Phelps. Video Producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.